Where are you? Are you in bed? Or are you leaving the first human footprint on Mars? Are you jogging? Or are you about to pull off the heist of the century? Are you in your car? Or are you praying those red eyes in the darkness can't see you? Every time he sees me, his eyes light up. Audible. I can Get your almost first hear his heart free beat faster. Every word. He looks at me the same way he did when we first met. For him, the best. I love at first sight every day. For me, it's heartbreaking. Loving someone who's living with dementia is not easy. For support, advice, or to make a donation, visit DementiaSA.org. You're listening to Vuga Online. You are rocking with the best. Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. What is the show about? Really, it's about healthcare. It's about healthcare professionals. It's about making sure that we get to meet different healthcare professionals and that we speak about topics that we may not actually normally talk about. So this show is not always comfortable. It's not always cozy. Sometimes there's like hard hitting. It's uh, digging into things that we don't necessarily know about. Healthcare Hour with me is really also to give the healthcare professional a voice and for everybody else to know that healthcare impacts all of us. At some point, someone, whether it's yourself or a loved one, needs healthcare. We need to look after our healthcare. More about me, I am a master coach, I am a master mentor, and my passion, my home is healthcare. It's where I started off 22 years ago, and lo and behold, 22 years in healthcare, 10 years of being a coach, tells you it's been a while. The topic today is something that's quite dear to my heart, and basically it's about seeing, caring about people. So in healthcare, it's about patient centricity. Patient centricity is about putting the patient at the center. But more than that, we've got to put the care team at the center. And so my guest today, who you're going to meet shortly, or as soon as we come back from our break, is, well, she's grabbed me right from the beginning because she's different, because she's a different administrator. And so this is why I wanted you to meet her. Before we go for this break, please make sure that you've downloaded the VUCA Online app, VUCA Online, your inspiration radio station. You can also listen to us on www.vukaonlineradio.co.za. But let's pop out for that break. How do you know the life or personal coach you are about to work with is who they say they are? How do you know if they can do the job? At the Africa Board for Coaching, Consulting and Coaching Psychology, we can tell you. So, before you share your secrets and spend your money, check with us first. Visit www.abccp.com or call us on 012-751-7608. The ABCCP, the professional body for coaches. Broadcasting worldwide, online, 24-7. It's Booga Online, your inspiration radio station. 
Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist on VUCA Online Radio, your inspiration radio station. The topic today is all about patient centricity, but care team centricity, because they can't work without the other. My guest, let me introduce you, is Anne Richardson. Hello, Anne. Hello, Colleen. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks so much for joining us. What is awesome about Anne, and certainly with me having met her, um, what is different about Anne is is her love for people, but also her willingness to get involved, to get out of the office. And so let me tell you more that Anne is a healthcare systems transformation and operations consultant. She's a passionate physician and care team advocate, and a fierce, very fierce, patient advocate. She's a systems thinker, an innovator, and a coach, trainer, facilitator, and she's also a mentor. Now, what makes Anne different as an administrator is, is that she believes as a visionary healthcare administration leader that you need to be involved. You need to get out of the office. And so she has got a strong ethics, integrity, and commitment to high-quality patient care and clinical program efficiency because of her physician and care team engagement. So Anne, welcome. We're gonna hear more about you as you unpack your story and as we chat to you. Yes, so thank you. Uh, yeah, so not to oversimplify the, the, the work that I'm passionate about, that I believe in, and I've had tremendous results, but it really starts at the core of who we are as human beings and keeping the human and everything that we do in healthcare, it sounds basic, but Sometimes we're surprised by behaviors and who we are at the core and empathetic, compassionate people and kind. Uh, and I've always been very um, inquisitive and a lifelong learner. So as an administrator in healthcare, starting early in my career where I didn't know as much clinically, I learned that being by the bedside, going into the operating room, the intensive care unit, being with the care teams, I call it care teams because as you know, that's that's doctors, that's nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, technologists, and so forth, but also the administrators within that as well are part of that care team. They're um, often the first line to grant access for patients when they come and see us or call. And so I learned a lot, but, but the most valuable part of that is in order to really be able to advocate and be a fierce advocate for patients is you must. I am really a strong advocate, very vocal about advocating for the care team because they often don't advocate for themselves for a variety of reasons. One, because they're patient focused. So they put the patient's needs first. It's up to me to have that outside pair of eyes to look at them and watch them in motion and say, wow, they could use this. Whether it's a different piece of equipment, better space, better time or staffing. Um, so when I say that I'm a fierce advocate, the only way that I can advocate for a patient as a non-clinician because I can't treat them is to advocate for the team. And in a simple, that, I mean, that's really what it's all about. And that means being present consistently. I need to add that. Physical presence is important. They need to see you. They need to hear you. They need to know you see them and that you hear them. And, and on that, it's about not reading the report sitting in your office with the door shut. It's about being there, being at the coalface, as we would say in, in South African terms, of knowing firsthand what happened. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, I, I refer to that as the armchair manager of which I'm not. And so often early in my career, there were people that were, you know, old school, I'll say this and made a big to do about my office, getting it ready and painted. And I'm saying, look, at, I, you know, I just need a computer, a phone, whatever, a place to work quietly for when I need to. But my work is out there. And so for the few naysayers who might have said, how do you do your job when you're out there? Uh, it's simple. That is my job. My job is so much easier over the years because I wouldn't be one of those people downloading reports and making a bunch of calls or sometimes fabricating something or an embellishing statistic because I knew the answer. So even if the answer was a negative variance or whatever the case may be, I would I put it like this. Keep your finger on the pulse of the team who keep the finger on the pulse of the patient. And you know what? You always have the answer. So my job was easier, but also you gain a lot of engagement and respect from your team because they see that you're visible and um, they know that you're there and you're approachable. You're not sitting in an office. And then, Anne, over the years, how have you weighed up being involved, supporting, connecting, um, as opposed to checking up on? Uh, that's a good question. I've been asked that before by others who haven't seen me in action. Those that have seen me in action know the answer. And that is even early on, um, I can think back, maybe it was six or so years ago when I was in a new position in a um, Boston teaching hospital. And one of the managers that um, was reporting to me, who was lovely, said to me, oh, you're going to have a hard time with this crew. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, you know, different demographic, different culture of patients and so forth. And, you know, and I said, well, okay, but I, but I'm going to, um, I'm not going to put on any act. I'm just going to be me and respect them. It took days. And he said, oh my gosh, I've never seen a staff be as engaged and take to someone as they have you. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, past experience. So sometimes past experience was a person who basically told people what to do as opposed to listen to their ideas and so forth. Um, so engagement, uh, you know, people sense right away that I care and I'm willing to admit what I don't know. I also don't tell people what to do and it's the old pull with soft eyes. So sometimes people will come along and learn from you because it's how you demonstrate how to treat people. Uh, and they have also seen me hands-on with patients. And what I mean by that is I literally get my hands dirty if I'm not in scrubs and I have a suit or a dress on, I'll still do comfort measures with a patient. I'll take them to the bathroom. I'll get them a warm blanket. I'll do whatever it takes. And when people see that and that I don't really care, sometimes if I miss a meeting, uh, that's not politically correct, but I'll tell you that the patient's always going to win. And if the leader says to me, hey, you missed a mandatory meeting, and I'll say, well, hey, you know, I was dealing with an access issue and a surgeon or somebody called me and I needed to be there if it was a safety or quality issue. And if I had to do it again, I'd miss the meeting. So, you don't become popular sometimes because it can be very bureaucratic. But I think if we keep our eye on our purpose and our mission, which should be the patient um, and stay true to ourselves on that, then we should be OK. OK, so let's take it a step back. How did you get to be an administrator? Did you start off as an administrator? So uh, as a young girl, I thought I wanted to be a nurse in the next Florence Nightingale, like a lot of um, young girls. And I come from a large family. I'm the youngest in the family. My oldest sister was a nurse, and I thought I wanted to be just like her. And I had other mentors through my family 
um, friends of the family and whatnot who are nurse leaders. So I started off in a BSN program. And after two years, I decided that I wanted to switch to healthcare administration because as much as I was passionate about nursing and healthcare, I knew I didn't want to be hands-on. And I have no regrets for that. So I pursued healthcare administration as an undergrad and then got my MBA. Um, so I'm pa I was, my passion has still been for care teams, nurses in particular, um, because that's where I started and a fierce advocate for patients. So I started, uh, you know, in the US, the first chance you have to get a work, to work alongside patients is as a volunteer in a hospital. So at 14 years old, I, I couldn't wait. I could not wait. And most volunteers volunteer for four hours a week. And I signed up for 4D. I did it full time because I couldn't get enough of it. And I loved it. And, um, and so, so that's at the stage. And so my roles, you know, I worked my way up, but I was fortunate through internships to make connections at some of the most renowned teaching hospitals uh, in the United States. And so I, I had uh, leadership roles or administrative roles in finance and administration, and then uh, worked my way to uh, pretty um, progressive leadership roles in academic medical centers, leading large departments. Um, I took a five-year hiatus a few years back uh, from healthcare, um, and it was reentry was hard, and um, I didn't actually aggressively pursue certain roles in the hierarchy in healthcare administration. And, and the reason for that, because I've been asked this, is because those positions definitely require you to be in meetings all day and sit in your office. And that is just not my forte. And my gift, because it is a gift, is working how I do. And that's holding a position where I can recruit physicians, nurses, and others, um, and help create an infrastructure, help build clinical programs, in their voices, because they're the ones that are telling me what they need, um, and implement those programs. Um, so that's- So thank, yeah, thank you for that. So you can see also that you're in a position where you are part of admin, but at the level where you're able to support the care team, but you can also speak to the people further up the chain. Um, and then obviously you've got to be quite, um, to be able to challenge authority. Yes, um, and I was always very good at that. Um, I believe in, um, I always tell people it's all in how you ask, but if you don't ask in a respectful manner or in any manner, you'll never get a yes. So I was not shy, but I also believe in people doing their homework, do your research. Uh, some of the early proposals that I did very early in my career uh, were a huge challenge. And that's where I spent time in the operating room so I could understand because my proposal back then uh, was for well over a million dollars of capital equipment. And it was at a time where the hospital didn't have the funds. I needed to thoroughly understand what the functionality of the equipment is, what would happen if we didn't purchase the equipment. So I really got into the safety and the quality and I did an obsolescence plan. And it was so convincing. It was, it was hard to say no for a level one trauma center. You, you know, this was anesthesia equipment. You, you, you couldn't, move forward without having a plan to replace it. So um, I have been very uh, influential, but again, I held leadership positions, but I still would sit at the executive table um, in some positions in a community hospital system, I reported to a president. 
So I was able to have that dialogue and the thing that I prided myself on and I still do today that I think is very important. It's not being, oh, gotcha, I had this information and, you know, I feel strongly and I've worked for leaders who didn't get it at first until a piece of information I gave them, they come back to me and say, now I understand why you're telling me. So keeping your leadership team that you work with apprised of what's going on so that they too can have their finger on the pulse um, and doing the typical SWOT analysis and telling a CEO, hey, this is a threat in the community. You need to know this. Or, hey, this is a great opportunity. Why don't we look at this program clinically? So I was always that person, very innovative, trying to keep my eyes and ears open for whatever opportunity we could have uh, to make access better for patients and also for our staff. Um, and to your point, sometimes you're speaking up and it's not popular, but anyone that knows me knows that if it comes to safety and patient, patient safety and quality or staff safety and quality, um, I'm not a person who's gonna look the other way and that can be a problem in healthcare there's a lot of uh, silencing that goes on and there's a lot of brushing things under the rug. Um, and that is something that I have been a victim of myself and I know how it feels and I don't like it. Okay. So on that point, let's pop out for a break. And when we come back, we're going to explore more about the silencing. No one decides to go into debt. It creeps up on you slowly. Debt follows debt, follows debt, unless you do something about it. Face your debt problems before they cripple you. It's time to do something. Stay woke with Rua Online Radio. Welcome back. You are tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. Today's guest is Anne Richardson, who's from the East Coast of America and specifically Maine. And she is an awesome administrator in that she does not believe that you administer from an office with a closed door. She hops out her office, goes to work with the people, and she's certainly not a check-up kind of person. She's a fierce advocate for patients and also a fierce advocate for the care team. So... I think what we've seen is, is that a lot of healthcare professionals are feeling that they're being silenced, Anne. Yes. Could you expand on that for us? So what's interesting is, is as I've um, come to know and meet folks like yourself from around the world, that while our healthcare systems may vary in terms of government, socialized medicine versus what we have in the United States, there is a common theme. And, and the common theme um, despite the structure of the actual healthcare system, if we call it, is the silencing. Uh, sometimes the toxicity that goes on. And um, if you have an organization where a new leader comes in and they embrace the, the uh, voice of the workforce, but they might inherit a culture that doesn't, well, that CEO and that executive team has a really difficult job because they need to change that. And uh, sadly, the only way to change it is to change the people. So that's where sometimes you have leadership turnover, but it's a healthy turnover and it's needed. But what we often seen is um, the silence, it comes from the top. So if it comes from the top, it's trickled down. It means that nurses that speak up, even doctors that are employed, more than 70% of the doctors in the United States are employed. 
either by a hospital system an insurance company or they're owned by private equity, for example, um, they often don't have a voice. Uh, and it's very, what scares me, I often say this, is that if a patient knows that their care team is silenced, they should be scared. And I feel that, um, again, go back to the respectful dissent or just having a voice is that as leaders, how are we to know what all the opportunities and answers are to make something better for our workforce and our patients if we don't give them an opportunity to talk to us about it? So healthcare for that reason has become very reactive. We saw that in the pandemic uh, with COVID as opposed to uh, proactive. And so while a lot of the challenges we have in healthcare are not caused by the pandemic, the pandemic, if anything, uh, shown the light, the silver lining was to show some of the uh, inadequacies that we have in the foundation of, of medicine today throughout, throughout the world. But silencing um, is something I write about and speak about often because I often say no different than in a personal relationship. You always say that when somebody stops fighting for what's right, and they start being um, present and they get quiet, you should be concerned. And in the case of healthcare in the United States, we're seeing that and the turnover is, is high. Um, and, and the turnover is high with the, there's no pool of candidates in a lot of categories clinically, it's a puddle because uh, as people leave, they're leaving the bedside. They're pursuing other career opportunities where they can use their skills, but where they can actually have a voice and make a difference. I like the, the way you said that uh, it's not a pool, it's just a puddle. Barely a puddle. And in some segments of the market in the country, it's, it's a barren desert where the earth is cracked. Um, and uh, honestly, one of the many concerns we have, and you can relate to this too, I'm sure in your country is, when we, so the access that diminishes. So when you have hospital systems, medical groups, whatever, limit their access, limit their hours, programs are being eliminated, clinical programs, which means a patient has to travel even further for their care. In some demographics, uh, even here in the state of Maine, where I am, we have deeply rural areas, no different than the rest of the United States, where uh, if a patient, if it isn't convenient for them to go get their care, particularly in an acute episode, they go without care. And so that the consequences of that is um, undue pain and suffering. And then by the time they do present, uh, it, it, it's, it's either an emergent or very acute situation, which um, is more costly and requires um, an even higher level of staffing, in, in which case the hospitals don't have that either. Okay, so why do you think, I mean, obviously COVID, but it's almost like, you know, when good, when good people keep quiet, first of all, but secondly, the whole idea of, oh, I can't speak out. But I think across the world, we are now seeing healthcare professionals are saying, you know what, no more. Uh, uh, very true. So in the case of nurses, I mean, nurses um, in the United States have always had a very uh, strong voice through unions because when they felt that they weren't being listened to and supported, uh, what was born out of the pandemic was, uh, and many nurses that have walked from the bedside, nurses uh, unions weren't even going to protect them because there were no nurses to be had. So when you had intensive care nurses and others where the staffing ratios were unsafe, um, that's where the moral injury sets in. Because when you have doctors, nurses, respiratory techs, and 
all of the care team feeling like they were going home if they could go home at all. Um, and they felt they weren't able to provide the care for the patients um, given the staffing. And so nobody, even myself, who's not clinical, I would have the moral injury of if I can't provide that care team that we need for our service, um, you, you would have that same challenge. So those people, and you know this, have suffered um, mental health, they have mental health issues, depression, PTSD, and so forth, and have left the bedside. Some have stayed in clinical roles administratively, uh, transplant coordinators, whatever the case may be, or actually um, a nurse that I've come to know is doing um, nurse recruitment for a hospital, which is, is fantastic. But some of these people are very young, very, very young people who will never practice clinical medicine or clinical care again, um, because the wounds are so deep and so fresh that they feel that, okay, until the healthcare system gets fixed, I need to take myself to save my soul, basically, and save myself for my, my own human being as well as my family. So the, the great resignation, as the States has called it, um, but certainly in healthcare. And, and, you know, we've also read about where there haven't been enough staff. So suddenly um, salaries have increased, wages have increased, um, yeah, which is also causing a lot more problems now. Uh, yeah, so so hospitals um, in the United States that are um, suffering, which many of them are, I don't want to say most, but we could probably say most, the government funds, which uh, was the CARES Act that helped to subsidize um, during the pandemic is gone. Um, but the three areas that hospitals are really, really getting affected negatively financially is the extra cost of the contract labor for nurses and doctors and techs and others. Um, that isn't going away. Um, and that cost has, has risen, although people are closely examining that. It's still a, a line item on the budget that wasn't accounted for. And then the supply chain costs throughout the world where we're having shortages and, the, and supply costs have gone up. So whether it's pharmaceutical or just basic med surge supplies, basic supplies. And then the third expense um, is the sign-on bonuses and the financial enticements that hospitals are forced to pay to be able to recruit a medical assistant, a nurse, and also uh, the compensation adjustments, the raises and the bonuses uh, that were not factored in to their forecasting when they did their financial budgeting. So uh, even hospital systems that were incredibly healthy and had um, very, very positive bottom lines um, are deeply in the red deeply in the red. As you said, though, it seems like healthcare around the world has been in a very big comfort zone. They've done things the way they've always done them, and it's been yes. traditional and ritual, and this is the way we do things. And it's almost like they've been unceremoniously removed from their comfort zone. But, of course, there's a, there's a big area of fear of having to think, oh, what happens, and trying to go back to the old system. So when we come back, we're going to look to see how we think we can move into a new system, what would suit us. Because, of course, you know, systems only work because people run them. Yes. So we'll be back. Listen to this. Up against the wall. <laughs> Took you long enough. Spit him. Whoa, that's a little rough. Oh. Oof. And now the same thing in pink. 
up against the wall. <laughs> Took you long enough. <laughs> Spread him. Oh, that's a little rough. Ooh. Oh, ooh. If a colour can make something sound kinky, imagine how it can make it look. Metal Paints, the right colour matters. Visit metalpaints.coza. Broadcasting worldwide, online, 24-7. It's Vuga Online, your inspiration radio station. station. Welcome back. You are on Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. We have got Anne Richardson who's speaking to us. She is an administrator and lots of other titles, but from the United States. And we've been having a fascinating look at how you administer in healthcare without sitting, as she called it, armchair, without sitting in the armchair, getting up, being part of the people, not checking up on them, not a tick box exercise, but being involved. Let's see the future. How do you see the future, Anne? Well, so I uh, during 2021, during the pandemic, I was on a consulting assignment um, here in the U.S. And one of the executives at the hospital noticed that I had a very positive, uh, respectful relationship and engagement with the, the clinical team, which was a very, very large clinical practice of doctors, nurses, and so forth. And rather than celebrate that the question was oh i'm concerned about potential for codependency here and i said what do you mean by that she said well when you leave what am i going to do i said hire somebody like me and she kind of laughed and i said well i'm not trying to be fresh or oversimplifying it but there's a lot of people out there i believe like me that um, are um, hands-on very effective with financial management, risk management, the legal aspects, all the other things that we need to know administratively, but who are willing to be with the care teams. And to me, the future of healthcare, um, I often say that it's not always, because uh, I don't want to point blame on the leadership, but it really is the buck stops with the leadership. And, um, and in some systems, that's the board of directors. And so we need to have a higher level of accountability there and recruit people in medicine and healthcare, um, just like the nurses and doctors who are mission driven and who care and who really, really, you know, actually care and love the people that they work with. And I'll use that word because I think that's important. And um, even when I've worked in systems that were terribly dysfunctional and could have been abusive, I would get in the zone with my own people and whatnot, and I could kind of quiet the noise that was going on elsewhere because I would be enthusiastic to see my team in flow and working as well as they were because they appreciated the fact that I did fight for an extra nurse or whatever the case may be. Um, and I, so I, I really believe it's in the people that we recruit. But what's going on now that concerns me is the um, appropriately so the negative press that healthcare is getting right now is um, there are people no different than I use nurses as an example, and even physicians that have left the bedside. <coughs> Excuse me, financially, some of them have taken roles that they're making significantly less. Some have no roles at all. They just had to get out to heal. <coughs> and they don't know where those next steps are going to take them. But so what concerns me is, are there good people, are there enough good people that are willing to go into healthcare or stay in and make a difference? Yeah. So certainly 
to keep the good people or to attract the good people, we're going to have to change the system. There, there's no, you know, <laughs> and globally, we're going to have to change the system. Yeah, and I mean, you can go back to look at quality uh, work and uh, the work of um, Deming, who will say that 94%, I, I use the word challenges versus problems because I hate the word problem. It seems so fatalistic. But if we look at the opportunities and challenges that we have, 94% of the time, it's a function of the systems and not the people. I know from experience, one of the first jobs that I was recruited for, I was given a spreadsheet. This was years ago with names on it of people that I just need to get rid of. And because why? Everything that was, it was not only they were blaming the people, but they had specific people. And that was really before I really knew or studied systems thinking. And I said, and I didn't say anything, but I said to myself, I'm going to go there and meet these people and figure them out and see what they're all about. Because they trusted me early on, they let down their guard and they told me they were bored. I need more work. They were on a short list to be removed because people viewed them as non-productive. I looked at them as people with institutional knowledge who had talent that was untapped. So one of my claims to fame, so to speak, that I love is I love giving people an opportunity to shine. And I like to take the person who doesn't even know that they were on a list or that they were labeled. And I like to make them feel good about themselves, that I can learn how can we incorporate this person as a human being and talent into our workforce and make them feel better. Um, and I educated others on my team of that philosophy too, because I didn't want to be with people who just cut people off at the legs, so to speak, if you made a mistake. It's like, no, why don't we coach them, train them and mentor them and give them the tools to succeed. And then if they can't, then that, that's a different conversation. Um, but I, I, I am concerned though, is how is our ability of an industry to get people in like myself? And the reason I say that too, is because a lot of the people that are out there teaching like master's programs are from that different, because a lot of doctors have had this conversation with me is that they're concerned about some of the leaders that are coming out of fellowship programs and whatnot, and who was their mentor and how were they trained? So that's something that I think people need to be cautious about. So do you think coaching would play a role here? Yes, absolutely. So so I um, I never had a coach um, in leadership, but I worked for CEOs and others who did, and that was part of their compensation recruitment package. And I always thought favorable, and I never shared it with them, but I said, oh, I would love that. And and the coach um, functioned in a role, you know, it was a, it was a leadership coach. Um, and... But what was interesting to me, and I think back of some in my recent years who had that and who talked a lot about how they had a coach and they used to share it publicly because they thought it was a way of engaging with everybody else to say, oh, I'm learning from my coach. Um, but some of those people were some of the most toxic people when organizations are still left standing with no bench. And when I say bench, I draw a lot on sports analogies, but they have no bench. Why? Because the good people left. Or the good people spoke up uh, and a person like that, you know, um, eliminated their position, laid them off, fired them, whatever the case may be. So I find it interesting. And the other thing about coaching that I, I'm sensitive to is I've worked with many, many doctors who speak up um, and they get labeled 
as being disruptive. And so what happens is the system gives them a coach. So a lot of doctors are very leery of the even the term coach because it was more of a, um, you know, a uh, punitive and you, you have an anger management issue and they would label them and, and, and um, it's very common, but more common with women physicians than men. I hate to say that, but most of the physicians that I know that were labeled um, and given coaches mandatory and they were told their jobs would be eliminated, they would be terminated if they didn't participate in a coach, they were women physicians. Um, but but I do feel that used in the right way and the right coach, I think it would be very, very effective. Um, and, and for myself, my colleagues at my level, it was a, it was a mixture of this. Uh, people who wanted to do what I did and they saw my engagement, but they were quiet about it. Maybe they were uncomfortable. A lot of people are not clinically savvy and they're not comfortable in a clinical setting. Then there were those they had no respect and no use for what I did. They were like, you know, rolled their eyes. They were like, oh, that's a complete waste of time. They were more like the aggressive executive leaders where they um, micromanaged and um, they didn't see the benefit of advocating at the level that I did. Um, and then there were those that in healthcare, we often promote people from within and they're not necessarily qualified. They're good people, but they're not ready. And healthcare um, is inherently weak in that we promote people, but we don't give them the training and the tools and the resources to succeed and we set them up to fail. Uh, I've seen that a lot. So when I see that organically, I've taken some people under my wing informally because I know they're good people and they're, um, it's gut wrenching to see them suffer and to quote unquote fail to no fault of their own. Um, but I, I would like to see it be a requirement and as you pointed out earlier, check the box, exercise, no. And in fact, when I would be with my teams, it would be every day. It was part of my standard operating procedure. It would be every day. Uh, and I wouldn't have a stopwatch. I wouldn't be timing people. I wouldn't have a clipboard. I would just be there. And um, I, I think that that should be required. It, it, it should be required. And going back to the comment about systems-based transformation, um, all of the ideas most of the ideas for how we're going to improve things are going to come from the people who do the work. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing you say as well is, is that we need leadership that doesn't sit with a spreadsheet. We need hands and hearts and minds of people to go and mingle with the people doing the job to, to almost sit in a circle of how, how does it work? What do you think? You know, um, because it's also about that when you don't know, you don't know. But speak to the people who do know. And when you provide a safe environment for somebody to go, well, you know, if we changed it this way, it could work better. Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I, so like I said, I started off um, in healthcare financial management. So I had a strong um, understanding of the um, budgeting process, forecasting, and so forth, both on the operating side as well as capital side. So I still believe that you need people, depending on these um, leadership roles, that have that background, for, for sure. And so that that was my um, one of my core, you know, competencies that I had. But again, the positions that I had, people would often say to me, um, "How do you?" Because I've had 
roles where I managed clinical groups of physicians and others in five different hospitals, and I would have hundreds of people. Well, how do you keep up with that, but go do what you do? And um, I, I just would know because I would know the operating room volume. I would know if we had new surgical programs, how was that going to affect anesthesiology? But I also was very, um, like I said, when whenever we had billing bottlenecks per se, I would go to the billing people and sit with them and say, hey, can you show me how you're doing this? Because I had to have an understanding why you know we had some delays. Um, but I also worked with finance people who were to this day, some of the most amazing finance people that I've ever worked with early in my career who like me were inquisitive. They were bored of just doing spreadsheets and, and um, they, they were fascinated by what I was learning because I would pass it on to them so that they could be better at their job. Um, so I, I, I'm, I don't want to say that, you know, you bring in leaders who are going to go out and, um, be immersed with the care teams because you still need to have a deep understanding of the recruiting process, the financial impact, and be able to do the business, the business case and the business plan, um, for all of what you're advocating for. Cause Nothing in healthcare is as simple as sending an email or a phone call, although sometimes it can be, hey, I need an extra nurse. There always has to be a financial you know, uh, analysis that you do, but those were easy for me because I knew what they were paid. I knew what the impact was going to be. I knew what the outcome was going to be for access. Um, and always, if you tie safety and quality into whatever you're doing on the healthcare side, which is easy to do, uh, even the most difficult of executives, and I've dealt with them, um, would give you the time of day and sit and listen and say yes. Okay, so certainly it's knowing what the guiding values are to be directed by those. So yes. when we come back, we're going to look at it just briefly in closing from the patient's point of view. If you're enjoying this interruption and find the sound of my voice captivating, you may be experiencing extreme boredom. Try new, fast-acting Subaru Impreza in hatch or sedan, formulated with symmetrical full-time all-wheel drive. Cure boredom fast with new Impreza. Voga Online Radio, your inspiration radio station. Welcome back. You are listening to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. My guest, Anne Richardson, has been chatting to us about patient centricity care team centricity, being an administrator who gets involved. Um, she's also just shared with us that being an administrator is not just about running around and sending an email. It is also about knowing the tough stuff, you know, how to do financial things, how to ask for backing on things. But let's look at it. Let's go out the hospital. Let's look at it in closing. What can the patient do? So when we talk about engagement and morale, let's say, of the workforce, I mean, there is a correlation between patient engagement and high patient satisfaction and a care team satisfaction. Although I will say that most care teams I've worked with are incredibly professional, meaning that if they're short staffed or something's not right, um, most of the time they will not pass that frustration on to a patient um, and they will not share you know, that they're short-staffed or whatever the case may be. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for them for that. But on the other hand, they're human. They're human beings. And so I would pride myself to say that 
in order for me to be that advocate of a patient who could be seen in a timely fashion. Timely, I don't mean like when they show up at the hospital, but get in to see a doctor sooner than two weeks, three weeks, a month, whatever the case may be. Working on systems to be able to have them seen in a timely fashion, but also to be seen in a respectful, dignified manner with a team that's there waiting for them per se. Um, so the, the patient, like right now, um, there's a lot of, um, in the, in the U S and I'm sure globally focus on be, poor behavior of patients, because sometimes there is abuse and violence that goes on. And there is a lot of uh, laws to protect healthcare workers and so forth, which is terrific. So obviously patients have a responsibility, but I will also say that we as a system have a responsibility to provide a safe environment for our workers as well, because sometimes there's violence between workers, whether it's verbal or physical, and that occurs as well. Um, but, but I think that, you know, for the systems that are competing for the volume and for the dollars, um, it's take care of your workforce, because if you take care of your workforce and, and treat them well at every level, patients are going to see that. Because while their nurse or the team might be quiet and not complain, they can feel the tension, they can see the tension. Uh, and I do think that when you have a workforce that's working in a psychologically safe culture where they have a voice, uh, patients are going to reap the benefits. And I think what you've said as well from a patient point of view is for the patient to know that their healthcare team are people, they're human, they get tired, they get sad, they need to, they get hungry. And it's just about seeing that, you know what, look after your healthcare team and they can look after you. Yeah, so one of the things that I did a few years back that I loved, again, there's so many examples and we only have so much time here, but I used to do rounding um, with the hospitalist team. And uh, because at that point in time, and it's no different than today in most hospitals, sometimes you have bottlenecks with the discharge planning. And, you know, because you maybe don't have enough case managers or whatever the case may be, shortage of nursing. And I wanted to understand that better. And it was fascinating because some of the days that I rounded with the doctors, I would have a dress or a suit on. And then other days I would be in clinical scrubs to fit in because I used to wear scrubs to fit in. I want to share that because I wanted to put the patient's mind at ease because sometimes if a patient sees somebody come that looks like they're an authority figure dress, um, patients, because I'll have conversations, might observe that, oh, this team must have done something and she's here to check up on them because that's what they think. And you don't ever want a patient to think there's something wrong because a patient it wouldn't dawn on them that somebody like me would come to actually be learning because that's not something that's typically seen. But I would have the doctors and others observe that, oh, uh, when you come in professional clothes, I get a different response from the patient. They'll consent to something that they wouldn't other ordinarily. And I'd, and I'd say, why? And they said, because they view you as a respectful authority and they're trying to impress you that they're listening to their doctor. So it was interesting. But that was a non-scientific study of ways that I could learn myself, but also embed myself into different cl clinical settings. And then the doctors and nurses, no doubt, would come back with their observations of how it helped or it might have hindered. And then we would make adjustments accordingly. And uh, that's just one example, but I was fascinated by that. How, But we involved the patients. Okay. So, yes, it certainly is complex, it's complicated, but in a way that if we work together, 
we can come up with a new system that is future forward, that will be there for to serve patients, to serve the care team, and to serve administrators. Yes, and I, and I think that when we talk about the voices, um, and this is not new, but the voice of the patient as well, you talk about you know different studies being done with focus groups, of course patients' voices should be um, listened to and instrumental as well. Um, but think of the patient though, when they go to a hospital today because of the pandemic and they hear about the shortages and whatnot, it's scary. So, I mean, we should all obviously, uh, I mean, healthcare is very much about sick care because we, you know, hospitals are built for sick people and that's okay. But if we take care of ourselves and try to avoid episodes of care, that would be great. Uh, but hospitals thrive on sick people. That's their business. But in the meantime, think, yeah, yeah. yeah, but think of how scary it is for patients today when they're hearing on the news, the nurse, nurse shortages and doctors leaving and so forth. So all the more reason it takes a higher level of emotional intelligence and leaders who get that, who are empathetic. If you go back to the basics of what we talked about in the beginning of being that human who really cares, because um, you could be that patient. Okay, so Anne, thank you so much for joining us. You've been an awesome guest. There's so much for us to talk about, but we seem to have run out of time now. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. I look forward to seeing you again. If you're enjoying this interruption and find the sound of my voice captivating, you may be experiencing extreme boredom. Try new, fast-acting Subaru Impreza in hatch or sedan, formulated with symmetrical full-time all-wheel drive. Cure boredom fast with new Impreza.